Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome, everyone. I'm Nicole Carter Quinn, Associate Director of the Women in Public Policy Program, uh, a research center here at the Harvard Kennedy School that closes global gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. I want to remind everyone that today's session is being recorded for podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Deborah Rohde, the Ernest W. McFarlane Professor of Law at Stanford University. She is also the director of the Center on the Legal Profession, as well as the program in law and social entrepreneurship. After graduating from law, from Yale undergrad and then Yale Law School, Rhodey Clerk for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall before beginning her distinguished tenure on the faculty at Stanford. Throughout her career, Professor Rhodey has founded and or led numerous organizations including the International Association of Legal Ethics, the American Bar Association's Commission on Women, and Stanford's Institute for Research on Women and Gender. Professor Rhodey is the most frequently cited scholar on legal ethics and has been recognized through numerous awards, including the White House's Champion of Change Award for her work on increasing access to justice. She has authored or co-authored over 20 books and over 250 articles, including publications such as The Beauty Bias, Women in Leadership, Legal Ethics, Gender and the Law, Moral Leadership and Access to Justice. Today, she is here to discuss with us her book, What Women Want, an Agenda for the Women's Movement. Before I turn it over, I just want to take a moment to read what your colleague Shelley Carell said about your book. She was here in this room with us last year, presenting her research. She says, if you have any doubt that gender inequality persists in today's world, you won't after reading this evocative, and data-packed book. What Women Want is the most comprehensive account of gender inequality out there. But Rhodey goes beyond describing the problem. She offers compelling advice for achieving a gender equitable society. We welcome you here today and we look forward to your insights and your advice. Thank you. So I'm enormously pleased to be here and even more pleased that you're here. Woody Allen said that 90% of life is showing up and of course it matters what you show up for and I thank you all for taking the time to show up for this. Let me begin, as does the book, with a New Yorker cartoon in which a woman frostily informs her obviously skeptical husband, yes Harold, I do speak for all women. This is not a claim that any contemporary feminist will readily make. Women don't speak with one voice on women's issues, and there are important divisions across race, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and so forth. But to build a powerful movement, we need to be prepared to generalize about the interests of women as a group and ask what would most women want if they were fully informed and free to choose and the goal was true equality between the sexes. 
What Women Want seeks to jumpstart a conversation about that agenda by surveying leaders of women's organizations and synthesizing a broad array of research on what holds women back. The book begins with a brief autobiographical account of how I came to write the book, and I won't dwell on that now, although I'm happy to answer questions. I will just say a few words about what it was like to be a woman law student and woman faculty member in the not-so-good old days. At Yale, I never had a course by a woman or about women. There were no women's organizations, and gender was noticeable for its absence in the curriculum. Things could have been worse, however. Uh, other law schools, including Harvard, were notorious for ladies' days. Professors didn't call on women except on those particular days, and the subject matter was specially adapted for their benefit. Rape cases with embarrassing facts, or hypothetical problems involving knitting and cooking. What's striking to me now is how little of this was striking to me then. It was just how law and life were. Sex discrimination was everywhere except in the curricula. I entered law teaching at Stanford in 1979, and I was for many years the second woman on a faculty of about 36 men. Initially, I indicated that gender and law was a subject I'd like to teach, and the dean was horrified. It would, as he put it, type me as a woman. Well, I responded with faint irony. I thought it probably wouldn't come as a surprise to most of my colleagues, and, <laughs> and what, after all, were my alternatives? But uh, to him, I had missed the point. The point was academic credibility, and to establish that, I needed a real subject. He suggested negotiable instruments, and we compromised on contracts, a field where I languished for seven years until the law school got a new dean and I got tenure. And it was a pretty lonely life. Although my colleagues were well-meaning and unfailingly polite, they were essentially clueless about what it was like to feel the pressure and isolation of being one of two women on the faculty. Some couldn't manage to keep our names straight, although we bore no physical resemblance. I was short and blonde, and the other female was tall and brunette. And I was never sure whether to correct the colleagues who occasionally called me Barbara. These experiences might not have been so hurtful if I'd known at the time that they're typical byproducts of tokenism. In the late 1990s, lawyers appearing before the Supreme Court mixed up the names of Justices O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg so often that the Women's Judges Association once presented them with t-shirts reading, I'm Ruth, not Sandra, and I'm Sandra, not Ruth. My most vivid memory of those early days was the dean's retirement dinner. The alumni threw a party at a local country club and hired a stripper to come and simulate her routine. None of the women present could quite believe it was happening. But the dean appreciated the thought behind the invitation and, well fortified by bourbon, warmly embraced the invited guest. And it was at that moment I decided to hell with contracts. The school needed a course on gender. Now, of course, some three decades later, the legal landscape has been transformed. Women are moving up, barriers are coming down, about half of law students and 30% of full professors are female, and examples of blatant discrimination are rare. I teach a course on gender that raises no administrative eyebrows. 
Yet at the same time, this progress has created its own difficulties. A central problem in securing gender equality is the no problem problem, the lack of consensus that it is a serious problem or that, en or that individual women have any capacity or responsibility to address it. Yet on every major dimension of social status, financial well-being, and physical safety, women still fare worse than men. Sexual violence remains common and reproductive rights are by no means secure. Women assume disproportionate burdens in the home and pay a price in the world outside it. But these issues are not cultural priorities. And what accounts for that fact? Part of the problem, I think, is the image of the feminist movement as strident and man-hating, which keeps many women from actively supporting or identifying as feminists. Although when dictionary definitions of feminism are given, as someone who supports political, economic, and social equality for women, between two-thirds and four-fifths of women consider themselves feminists. When no definition is given, the figure drops to a quarter. Researchers find that identification as a feminist is important because it correlates with activism. And the disconnect between the substance and the image of feminism has been a long-standing barrier to mobilizing Americans around gender issues. Those negative associations, of course, are partly a result of how the media framed early activism. Press caricatures often perpetuated the image problem they claimed only to describe. If, as Time magazine once argued, hairy, head, hairy legs haunt the feminist movement, as do images of being strident, one reason for that image is that mainstream publications continually featured such descriptions. Another reason for the no problem problem and the lack of identification as a feminist is that women simply don't feel worse off than men. So they lack the urgency that would fuel political activism and financial contributions to women's organization. Does that mean the movement is stalled? That was one of the main questions that I asked leaders of women's organizations, and I got a mixed response. Some felt we were, as one put it, totally stuck and getting pushback. They pointed to the absence of women in leadership positions, the lack of progress on the pay gap, fights on reproductive rights issues, and the lack of an organized response. The president for the Center of Reproductive Rights noted that compared with what we had in the 1970s, we seemed to be hibernating. By contrast, others took the long view. Women's issues are on the agenda and front and center in political campaigns. And the fact that we're here talking about this book is some measure of change. But the fact that we need to be talking about it is a measure of the distance we still need to travel. So what are the issues that should motivate women to seek change? Let me begin with employment as an area ripe for reform. The labor force remains gender segregated and gender stratified with women still overrepresented at the bottom and underrepresented at the top. As we approach the 50th anniversary of equal pay legislation, we remain a considerable distance from accomplishing its promise. Full-time female workers' annual earnings are 77% of men's, a gap that hasn't changed since 2001. At current rates of change, it would take another half century to get equal pay for full-time workers. 
One reason for the gap is that women are clustered in low-earning occupations and lower-paying sectors within occupations. For example, in my own field, there are 86% of paralegals, but only 16% of partners in large firms. In academia, women are a majority of college graduates, but only about a quarter of full professors and university presidents. In management, women constitute a third of MBA graduates, but less than 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs. And at current rates of change, it would take two and a half centuries to get equality in the executive suite. Similarly situated women also earn less than men. Even after controlling for a broad range of factors, such as education, experience, training, and family characteristics, <coughs> the gender gap in earnings persists. At every educational level and in every occupational field, women have lower salaries. Even female dishwashers <coughs> earn significantly less than males. Well, what accounts for the gap? To begin with, despite recent progress, women, particularly racial and ethnic minorities, often lack the presumption of competence enjoyed by white men and need to work harder to achieve the same results. A telling case history in the extent of unconscious bias involves orchestra auditions. When screens were introduced so that the sex of musicians was no longer visible, women's representation in symphony orchestras dramatically increased. And even last year, one of the conventional resume studies that sent out student resumes with male and female names got different responses depending on gender. Part of the problem, of course, may be internally driven. As Sheryl Sandberg has famously put it, women don't lean in. But the problem may also reflect the mismatch between qualities associated with leadership and qualities associated with women. Most of the traits that people attribute to leaders are masculine, dominance, authority, and assertiveness, and those don't seem attractive in women. Women are subject to double standards and double binds. What's assertive in a man is abrasive in a woman. And female employees risk seeming too feminine or not feminine enough, either not tough enough to make the hard calls or overly strident and aggressive. Jill Abramson, the editor dismissed from the New York Times, is a textbook case. Another one, I think, is Ellen Powell, who recently lost her gender discrimination case against a leading venture capital firm. She was rated in evaluations both as too passive and too pushy. People rate men higher on leadership ability and more readily accept men as leaders. In studies where people see a man seated at the head of a table for a meeting, they typically assume that he's the leader, but they don't make the same assumption when a woman is in that seat. A telling business school experiment illustrated the problem. It gave participants a case history about a leading venture capitalist with outstanding networking skills. Half the participants were told that the individual was Howard Roizen. The other half were told that she was Heidi Roizen. The participants rated the entrepreneurs as equally competent, but <coughs> found Howard more likable, genuine, and kind, and Heidi more aggressive, self-promoting, and power-hungry. Why have legal prohibitions on discrimination have had such um, little impact on many of these gender biases? 
Well, first of all, women often don't realize that they're victims of sex discrimination. Anne Hopkins, an accountant who successfully sued Price Waterhouse, had no specific proof that sexist comments had been made about her or any other woman at the firm at the time she filed her complaint. Yet the record ultimately revealed ample evidence of gender stereotypes. Female accountants were faulted for being curt, brusque, or women's libbers, or for acting like one of the boys. Hopkins herself was characterized as someone who overcompensated for being a woman by acting mako and overbearing, and she needed a course at charm school. Several male accountants who achieved partnership around the same time had been similarly described as abrasive, overbearing, and cocky, and no one suggested charm school for them. Even individuals with convincing evidence of bias are often reluctant to challenge it. One national survey of 1,000 workers found that a third of those who reported experiencing unfair treatment did nothing. Only 3% took legal action. Many individuals are deterred by the high financial and psychological costs of legal action and the low probability of winning any substantial judgment. Plaintiffs are putting their professional lives on trial, and the profiles that emerge are seldom entirely flattering. A gay associated sued a leading Wall Street firm was described in New York Magazine as a smarmy, paranoid kid with a persecution complex. In Nancy Easold's case against a leading law firm, Wolf Block, a senior partner told American Lawyer that she was like the proverbial ugly girl. <coughs> Everybody says she has a great personality, but it turns out that Nancy didn't even have a great personality. Regressive government and corporate policies also hold women back. The United States has the least family-friendly policies in the developed world. It stands alone with only seven other countries and not guaranteeing paid maternity leave. In some professions, law for example, only a fifth of female lawyers are satisfied with the allocation of time between their personal and professional lives. As one young attorney responded to a bar survey about her quality of life, this is not a life. Another noted that her sweatshop schedule made it difficult to have a cat, much less a family. American policies concerning childcare, part-time work, and flexible schedules are far less progressive than Western Europe's. Most children under five in this country are in non-parental care, and many of the arrangements are lacking in quality, affordability, and flexibility. Neither regulatory structures nor market conditions encourage well-trained service <coughs> providers. This nation requires instruction and licensing to be a manicurist, but only a dozen states require any training to care for children. So too men's family patterns haven't kept pace with women's workforce obligations. Although father's share of domestic work has increased dramatically over the last half century, mothers continue to shoulder a disproportionate burden in the, in the home and to pray, pay a price in the world outside it. The disparities are especially pronounced among those who opt out of the labor force. About a quarter of women with children under 15 are stay-at-home mothers. Fewer than 1% of married men with children under 15 are stay-at-home fathers. Women spend over twice as much time on care of children and over three times as much time on household tasks as men. Yet as Gloria Steinem once put it, 
women will never be equal outside the home until men are equal inside the home. The solutions are obvious but elusive. Women need legislation and workplace initiatives that secure equal pay for comparable work, paid parental leaves, flexible work structures, and affordable quality childcare. And they need to challenge the cultural norms that penalize leadership behavior in women and equal caretaking by men. Women also need greater protection of reproductive rights. <coughs> this is, of course, a difficult issue on which women are divided. But most can unite around a goal of making abortion safe and unnecessary, and we're a far distance from that. About a quarter of family planning clinics report incidents of severe violence annually against providers of abortion services. Operation House Call organizes activists to target doctors' homes for harassment, and other groups use media campaigns to run slogans like, some doctors deliver babies, some doctors kill babies. George Tiller, the nation's leading provider of late-term abortions, was gunned down while attending church. Over 85 <coughs> counties have no abortion provider. And anti-abortion activists have succeeded in passing a broad array of restrictive statutes designed to make abortion more costly and less accessible. More than half of states have <coughs> trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers. These statutes seek to force clinic closures by expo imposing expensive requirements, such as demanding that clinic facilities meet similar building standards as hospitals. Many states require women to wait a long period between mandatory counseling and getting the actual procedure, which raises the expense and difficulty for women who don't live near an abortion provider. Many states also have informed consent procedures that require given, giving unsubstantiated information line on issues like fetal pain and the medical risks of abortion. Bans on funding create another obstacle to choice. As many as one-fifth to a third of poor women can't obtain abortion because of lack of resources. Although women obviously differ on the morality of this issue, about two-thirds believe that the courts should not overturn Roe versus Wade, which guaranteed abortion in the first three months of pregnancy. Women who share that commitment need to mobilize and ensure that safe choices are available. More resources need to be targeted at ensuring women, particularly poor and adolescent women, have access to family planning information and assistance. More resources also need to go to supporting the one in seven women who are poor. Only about a quarter of women living in poverty are receiving welfare, and benefits are only 50% above the poverty line. The human costs are substantial. Millions of families suffer from shortages in food and housing, and inadequate safety nets keep women <coughs> trapped in violent relationships. Raising the minimum wage and indexing it to inflation would help, since women constitute two-thirds of minimum wage workers. Expanded educational and employment options are still more critical. Ronald Reagan once famously quipped that we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. The battle lines are still drawn, and we can't settle for defeat. Domestic violence and rape also call for more effective enforcement strategies. An estimated quarter of women have experienced family violence. And the United States has the highest rate of spousal homicide in the developed world. 
A common response to domestic abuse is, why doesn't she just leave? But the answer too often is that she has nowhere safe to go. The time when women are most likely to suffer injuries in an intimate relationship is when they're trying to end it. And shelters for victims come nowhere close to meeting the need. Some turn away as many as 5,000 requests a year. One domestic violence advocate in Oregon reported being asked if she knew a safe bridge that women could sleep under. The recent scandal involving Ray Rice, in which an NFL commissioner initially banned him from playing only two games despite his violent assault on his fiancée, speaks volumes about the cultural attitudes that need to change. We urgently need better strategies for supporting victims and preventing violence. And the same is true concerning rape. About one in five women has experienced an attempted or completed rape, and the figures are even higher in the military and on campuses. The United States has the second highest rate of reported rape in the world. Reports of rape in the military continue to rise sharply despite Defense Department assurances that it has no tolerance for sexual assaults. Representative Jane Harmon noted that women serving in the U.S. military are more likely to be raped by a fellow soldier than killed by enemy fire. Only about a third of rapes and attempted rapes are reported, and fewer than 10% of sexual assaults will result in a conviction. Part of the reason involves lingering rape myths. A Toronto police officer told a group of college women that if they wanted to avoid sexual assault, they should avoid dressing like sluts. <coughs> Despite recent reform efforts, it's the victim's conduct as well as the assailant's that is on trial in rape proceedings. Jurors' perception of the moral character of the complainant has traditionally been the most important factor affecting outcomes. A textbook illustration of the problem surfaced in a widely publicized Amherst student's account of her campus rape in which a sexual assault counselor told her that pressing charges would be useless. He's about to graduate. There's not much you can, we can do, she said. Are you sure it was rape? It might have just been a bad hookup. You should forgive and forget. In a similar case at Occidental, an administrator reportedly told the complainant not to worry about safety because she'd met the rapist and he didn't seem like the type of person who would do something like that. Media coverage is essential in forcing change. The adverse publicity following the Amherst students' expose, exposure of her rape case prompted a comprehensive review and reform of the camp's sexual assault policy. Slut walks organized in response to the Toronto police chief's comments. <coughs> but we need to do much more and start education earlier. At relatively young ages, children begin absorbing traditional assumptions about the legitimacy of male sexual aggression and the trivialization of its consequences. We need to alter those assumptions and encourage victims to come forward with a different message. <coughs> On a lighter note, let me say a final word about appearance bias. This isn't among the most crucial issues facing women, but it's one in which the women's movement has made the least progress. And in some respects, such as the rise of eating disorders and cosmetic surgery, the problem has grown worse. Almost half of women are dissatisfied with their bodies, which is higher than a quarter of a century ago. And after money, 
appearance is women's greatest source of dissatisfaction. Beauty may be only skin deep, but the per costs of its pursuit go far deeper. We all know that looks matter, but few of us realize how much. And seldom do we recognize the price we pay in time, money, and psychological well-being, or the extent to which our beauty biases compromise meritocratic principles. But the costs of our pro cultural preoccupation with attractiveness are much greater than we commonly assume. The significance of attractiveness comes as no surprise, but the extent of its advantages is not as obvious. Less attractive individuals are less likely to be viewed as smart, happy, interesting, likable, or successful. Appearance also skews judgment about competence. Resumes and essays get less favorable evaluations when they're thought to belong to less attractive individuals. Less attractive teachers get less favorable course evaluations from students, and less attractive students receive lower ratings in intelligence from teachers. Less attractive individuals are generally less likely to be hired and promoted, and they earn lower salaries. Penalties have been demonstrated even in fields like law and higher education, where appearance bears no re demonstrable relationship to job performance. Almost 90% of women consider how they look to be very important or somewhat important to their self-image. A third rank it is the most important contributor above job performance and intelligence. Over half of young women report that they would prefer to be hit by a truck than be fat, and two-thirds would rather be mean or stupid. The costs of this cultural preoccupation are substantial. The global investment in grooming totals over $100 billion, and Americans alone spend <coughs> over $40 billion a year just on diets. This preoccupation with appearance reinforces gender stereotypes and encourages evaluations of women in terms of attractiveness rather than character, competence, hard work, or achievement. It speaks volumes about our national preoccupation with female appearance that Sarah Palin's campaign paid more for her makeup specialist than her foreign policy advisor. Prevailing beauty standards also place women in a double bind. They're expected to conform, yet condemned as vain and narcissistic for attempts to do so. Neither should they let themselves go, nor look too hard as if they were trying not to. Yet whatever their position on these issues, women can unite around certain shared values. In the world that women want, appearance would be a source of pleasure, not of shame, and employers would not be entitled to discriminate on the basis of looks. One way to move the agenda on all of these issues is to get more women into leadership positions. Today in elective office, women account for just 18% of Congress, a quarter of state legislatures, and 10% of governors and the mayors of major cities. Given current rates of change, it would take close to a century to equalize men and women's representation in Congress. From a global perspective, we rank 78th in the world for women's representation in political office, below Slovakia, Bangladesh, and Saudi Arabia. The problem is not performance. Researchers consistently find that when women run for office, they're just as effective in terms of fundraising and electability. The main difficulty is that women don't run. And this is a problem because women are more likely than their male colleagues to address women's issues and to rank those issues as priorities. 
But of course it matters who the women are. As examples like Sarah Palin remind us, putting women in positions of power is not the same as empowering women. We also need to support men who support women. One of my other favorite New Yorker cartoons features a boardroom with a dozen men seated around the table and one woman. The chair of the meeting looks at her and says, that's a great point, Miss Teague. Now let's just wait till one of the men makes it. To change that dynamic, more women and men need to target their votes and dollars at political candidates, both male and female, who are willing to advance gender equity interests. We also need a strong women's movement that can help create political support for those initiatives. Over a quarter century ago, newspaper editor William Allen White advised women to raise more hell and fewer dahlias, and it remains good advice. Thank you. Question. Jenny. Just going back to your point about isms, or feminism in particular, and I think it is, you didn't connect it with other isms, but I think that people don't like to take labels in general. The percentage of people calling themselves feminists has not, has decreased somewhat, but not hugely uh, over, the, over time. And I think, but the percentage of people calling themselves independents has increased tremendously. I think there's a general uh, desire not to be labeled, particularly among uh, people these days, when um, activism seems to be things that were done, was done, activism was something done in the 60s, and yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say about the general trends regarding activism? Well, I think you're absolutely right that women don't like the labels, and the number of celebrities who have essentially said that when asked, you know, I don't want to label myself. Sarah Palin said it her initially. She said she was a feminist in a nationally televised um, broadcast, and then her advisors made her walk it back, and she said, I don't, I don't accept the label. Um, so that's a safe space, I agree with you, for people to be in. I just find the lack of, um, of activism somewhat dispiriting. Um, I mean, I, I grew up at a time when the women's movement was was in its formative years. And now I take the point that a lot of activism continues on social media. But I think too often people think pushing a button is a substitute for the hard work of organizing and really pressing for change and contributing money to it. Um, so people are happy to tweet around the you know most recent outrage, but getting them to actually do something tangible and to make their votes follow their commitments is a huge challenge. And I don't have an easy answer for, for that in general. I, you're the expert there. Maybe you, <laughs> thoughts? No, I have no thoughts. <laughs> <coughs> yes. Um, my name is Robena Nation. I'm from the University of Cologne in uh, Europe. I'm um, here uh, as a fellow. And thank you uh, for the very interesting talk. It was, um, for me, uh, very important to listen to you because my question and my research point is uh, as follows. In Europe, uh, people
people are more um, or people are at uh, the moment uh, interested in introducing or imposing a women's quota on mm -hmm. girls. And in Germany, um, there will be a law right. for <laughs> uh, uh, 30% of the women in the biggest companies in the, in the country should uh, be reserved, reserved for a woman. And uh, your thesis uh, from your talk is to put more women in leadership position, positions. It is exactly the aim of the law in uh, Germany and in Europe in general. But um, I'm very interested in your opinion about this uh, measure. What do you think? Is this the right way to put more women in leadership positions by introducing or imposing uh, legal quotas uh, for um, boards and um, big corporations? Yeah, so yeah, that's a great question. So I've written a long article on this subject, and I'll just distill it. Um, uh, quickly, I think first politically speaking, quotas in this country are a non-starter. Um, this nation has an aversive response to quotas, and if you ask about it in, in affirmative action, if you ask about it in virtually any context, you know you 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 find an enormous reluctance. Yeah. Um, and there are legal obstacles as well. Yeah. So I just don't think it's going to happen here. Would it make a huge difference if it did? Here I think the evidence is is mixed. Aaron Durr, um, a scholar um, uh, who's from Osgood, has just published a book um, that that's coming out um, in which he interviewed uh, women in Norway. And one of the things that you find is a fair amount of trophy directors the same women get appointed to the same boards. And, you know, honestly, um, I lived in a university where Condoleezza <coughs> Rice was the provost, and she's now on several boards. And do I think it's made a big difference at Exxon that she's on the board? Um, no, and certainly not for women's issues. She's got a tanker named for her, though, which has <laughs> got to be a first. And, you know, I'm, I'm for equal representation of women's on boards for reasons of equality, you know, and women should have an equal opportunity at tankers. But do I think it's going to change the corporate culture? Um, do I, I, you know, it's which women are appointed. And by definition, the ones who will get to those positions are ones who have been socialized um, to more or less to take the party line. So. I don't put that at the top of my agenda, and I also think the politics of getting there in this country through quotas would be um, really insurmountable obstacles. What I do think we should do is have much more disclosure so that you embarrass the companies. Um, you know, Facebook actually ended up putting Sheryl Sandberg on the board when it, um, Mark Zuckerberg got a lot of flack for not having any women on his board. And he said famously in a New Yorker article that he was looking for competence. He didn't want to just check the box. And the blowback from that was enough to guilt trip him. So I think, you know, transparency is a good thing. And the SEC is thinking about sh tightening up rules for that, and I'm all for that. But I don't see that as the end-all and be-all um, uh, issue. Yeah. Well, 
because this is exactly also my point, and I'm criticizing this measure because I want to show in my research that the uh, enforcement of quotas leads to uh, or to the increases statistical discrimination against women. When you um, when you impose a quota of women, you signal already there is a need. They are not so good like men, and therefore they need a quota. And this is um, uh, this increases the statistical discrimination against women. I want to to uh, yeah into research on this question. Well, you know, that's, a di that's an interesting point. People have said that about affirmative action for a long time, that it stigmatizes the beneficiaries. But I think you, you, you also have to say compared with what. Aaron Durr's research, interestingly, did not find that the Norwegian women felt that they <laughs> suffered from that. And I'm always reminded, I had a colleague, um, the other woman, actually, at Stanford who was on the faculty, um, Barbara Babcock, who was appointed as Assistant Attorney General at a time when this was still a huge novelty to have a woman in this position, and she got so tired of being asked about how it felt to be a woman in the position, she finally said to a reporter, you know, a whole lot better than not being in the position because you're a woman. And, you know, so, so I think it's a trade-off. Yeah. And if I were writing on a clean slate without sort of political obstacles, I'd, I'd think twice about yeah. the quota system. Yeah. Just quickly on that matter, um, okay, and Anda here at the Kennedy School yeah. for Semester Control at MIT have done the famous study in India yes. showing that yeah. quotas there had great effects. Yes. Yes. yes, yes, I know this study. Yeah. I'm sure inspired. you know it's yeah. 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 Yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah, good, thank you. Yes. So, so I have a question. In India, we're in the nascent stage of getting aware of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. But when I run a company where we go in and do intercultural training in organizations, when we go in there and say there's a need for diversity and sexual harassment as a program among the teams, the company agrees, but the participants come in, they're kicking and screaming, saying they don't need it. So how do you deal with this? No problem is the problem. What's the solution to that? Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I, I saw, I was at a conference at the business school this morning, and Frank Dobbin, who's in the sociology department here, just has new data, he tells me, that finds that the backlash from mandatory training produces less good outcomes than no training at all. So I hate to rain on your parade, but a little bit of drizzle, you know, just so you know what you're up against. You know, the backlash problem for mandatory training is substantial, and there isn't good evidence that it produces good outcomes. Um, some of the earlier research tends to show exactly what Frank's does. So, um, so I think having people there, you know, who don't want to be there is a problem. I also think that a lot of the training isn't well done. My husband came home with stories from his mandatory sex harassment training. In California, we have, by statute, people in managerial positions have to be trained every other year 
in this. So we all, courtesy of Arnold Schwarzenegger's problems, he couldn't veto the legislation <laughs> when there was all this blowback about his own history. So we all have to sit there and suffer. And my husband came home just furious at having to spend a half day learning about what kinds of hugs were legally <laughs> permissible. You know, a full frontal hug was not, but a side hug, that was just a yellow light. The trainer had green light, red light, and yellow light signals. And, you know, um, it, 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 it can be kind of ludicrous. But it's interesting that after we go through the program and run a little bit of the Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In and the new Facebook India head is a woman. Mark Zuckerberg took that seriously enough to put Pierdinger ready as the head of Facebook India. When you start talking about the actual cases, then the lights go on. Oh, yeah. is that sexual harassment? I didn't realize that's what it was about. So there is a need, but I just wondered. But thank you for giving me yeah. the fine line to walk between mandatory training and if you can make, if you can provide incentives for voluntary training, the evidence suggests that it works better. Um, so, uh, and also doing it well. I mean, not all training is this asinine red light, green light system. I mean, having people read Cheryl Sandberg's book would be a good start. Or selected portions. Let's be realistic. <laughs> Ah, good, good. <laughs> yes? Um, you talked, or you opened your talk talking about important differences between women based on uh, class, race, these types of things. Um, and I wonder if you have an idea about, as the movement goes forward, ways that we can talk about issues that affect different types of women differently, but still have a narrative about women's interests in women. Well, I think just recognizing the divisions and not papering them over and having an honest dialogue about them is is the only way to proceed. Um, but I, you know, I, I and I I used that cartoon advisedly, and I I wondered a lot, worried a lot about the title for this book. You know, who am I? And a you know a white privileged woman at an elite university to start preaching about what, quote, women want. But I think if we can't talk about collective interests, uh, we've just hobbled ourselves politically. So there's just got to be a way to talk about group interests while recognizing the divisions across those important identity um, characteristics. And I don't think there's any easy way to there, and I think mistakes get made along the way a long time, and the women's movement has surely been guilty of a lot of them. But I think sensitivity to those issues has enormously increased within the women's movement, and, you know, I think the, the harder problems really now are how you build bridges among those different groups to get to a common agenda. And there are no shortcuts. Yes. So, increasingly, there, there are a lot more women in higher education, and the, the educational platform people feel has been kind of leveled, but it's not required for anyone to learn about gender issues in any of these institutions. And if we were able to take advantage of the fact that all these women are physically present in these places and help them to think about these issues more, like what thoughts do you have on how we could approach that piece of it better? 
Wow. I just, uh, as you were asking the question, I just had this visual image of Stanford in the summer. It's a very attractive um, campus and a very attractive place in the summer for people to visit. And we sell space for conventions and conferences. And every year we host the annual cheerleaders convention. And I'm always just tempted to go out there with a collection of my books free <laughs> to hand out and say, here, you know, um, in your spare moments. I, you know, I think mainstreaming the issues in the standard curriculum is the only way to go. Otherwise, you're preaching to the converted. I mean, I teach a course in gender law and policy, but it's, you know, the people who most need it at the law school are never going to take that course. So, so I, I put the issues in my standard professional responsibility course, which students have to take. And we spend some time on a case history of the first sex discrimination case that went to trial against a law firm. And, you know, I have students vote. It's a complicated case. There aren't clear victims and villains, so it's a nice one to teach with. But I think you've got to get those issues into the curriculum. And we just bit, recently at Stanford had a, had a pedagogy lunch, which we do very rarely. The assumption in law school is that if you survive law school, that's by definition a sufficient credential to be a teacher. And there's no training at all for teaching. And we almost never have workshops on teaching. But we had one on introducing race and gender issues into the first year curriculum. And, you know, those kinds of interventions are a good start. And I think it, it gave people some pause. One of my colleagues got up and, ironically enough, was one of the presenters on the subject and talked about how he presented rape cases. And every year I get complaints from students in my gender class about how he presents rape cases. Um, so, you know, just having the conversation doesn't solve the problem. Um, I, I, but it's, it's the first step, I think. So I'm all for mainstreaming. Yes? On a similar vein, my research is on domestic violence, and I also work on campus sexual assault issues here at Harvard. And one of the biggest frustrations I've found is the refusal from a societal level to aggregate the harm to women. By, so we, we talk about the individual details of rape cases or of domestic violence cases. Oh, he's such a nice guy. He's always mowing the lawn. We're so surprised. Um, or Jill Abramson's case. How are you, and maybe it is through curriculum changes, but how do you think we can, can show that this is a pattern, this is, there is a lot of harm and it's, it's not individualized, it's not rare? Well, I think we have to do both. I think, you know, and I tried to do some in the presentation of both giving you the statistics, a quarter of women and, you know, a fifth of women with um, rape cases, and then giving you some stories. Um, because the depressing truth is that people remember stories a lot better than they remember statistics. And, you know, the facts are frustratingly familiar and everyone's eyes glaze over when you start to go through the, you know, the labor force and the pay gap and the gender segregation and, you know, the number of assaults. But I think sometimes the individual cases are what grabs attention. I, I've just been, um, some of you may have been follow, following the Ellen Powell sex discrimination case um, in Silicon Valley. It's gotten a fair amount of attention because it's the first 
case against a venture capital firm that went to trial, and there's been all sorts of interesting, you know, good sound bites coming out of that case. You know, the, the partner who said they weren't inviting women to a networking dinner because they'd kill the buzz. You know, it's been evidence like that that's kept it on the front page. And I think it's really changed the conversation in Silicon Valley in a way that just me reciting the fact that only 6% of venture capital uh, firms' partners are women has. I mean, we've been saying these things for a long time, but suddenly the concrete illustration in a way and her evaluations that showed that she was told both she was too pushy and too passive make make the case for what we all know statistically from the evidence um, that women are subject to this double bind. So and yet she lost mm -hmm. and the jury found so is, is that what signal does that send? Well, what I said in the New York Times and it made the quote of the day, this should go on my epitaph because <laughs> never again will this happen, is I said sometimes I said the case sends a clear message to Silicon Valley in general and the venture capital uh, community in particular that they have to take these cases seriously and that sometimes defendants who win in court lose in the world outside it. And Kleiner Perkins, the defendant in this case, took a huge hit in terms of its reputation. Um, and I'm sure there's been plenty of Monday morning quarterbacking why they didn't just settle for her with what was sort of chump change for, for a firm with their resources, um, rather than get all this stuff aired on the front page of the local papers. So already there have been a couple of copycat suits filed. Um, the business for consultants on gender has got skyrocketed in <laughs> Silicon Valley. People are having a conversation that they didn't have before. And, you know, I, I'm, I don't think one case levels the playing field, but just like when Anita Hill made her accusations of Clarence Thomas, it didn't keep him off the Supreme Court, but it sent complaints on sexual harassment to the EEOC, you know, up the wazoo. So, you know, change happens in lots of different ways, and sometimes the formal legal status of the case is not the, the benchmark. Having said that, I don't minimize the fact that there's going to be some blowback from this case and I'm sure there are partners who are silently thinking, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You, you get a woman in here and you've got a potential lawsuit. But I think they've also figured out that not having any women in there exposes them to a potential lawsuit um, as well and you know one that they're much more likely to lose so so i i you know what can i say i'm i'm a i'm a law professor so i just have to believe that sometimes the law matters even when it doesn't produce the outcomes that you want or i wouldn't you know get up in the morning yes yes uh, i would like to continue on the point you made about gender mainstreaming in the curricula i'm in political science in Europe, and in Europe, uh, gender is also very marginal uh, in the uh, general curriculum. And um, I've been working on a special issue on this uh, theme with contributions from several countries. And it seems that with the backlash against women's studies and this transition from women's studies to gender studies, 
that gender got lost in the mainstream, so that there was more uh, attention to women's issues and gender issues when women's studies was firmly um, established within departments. Um, so my question is, how do you think we can get that back or transform it in a way that we can integrate gender as part, not as a separate stream, but into the general uh, core courses of the curriculum? Uh, and I also wondered what you think about the um, dialogue between generations. You referred to um, the feminist movement in the 60s and the 70s and activism and then the current generation communicates through Twitter and Facebook is not so, uh, how do you call that, um, not so activist. Uh, they're not, maybe not doers like you were. So what do you suggest? How could we learn from each other to produce, a new, to come to a new, new strategies or a new type of movement? Well, on the latter point, you know, I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic that some successes in mobilizing are going to have stepchildren. I, I think that the recent arousal of attention about campus rape is a really good illustration of mobilization by young women in a very smart and savvy way. Um, campus rape has been at epidemic proportions for a very long time and it hasn't been talked about. And now it's on the agenda, and it's on the agenda because a critical mass of young women were willing to come forward, tell their stories, and were smart enough to know how to get press for them, how to use Title IX as a vehicle to get the federal government to investigate them. Now there was a presidential task force on the subject. Um, there's um, just a huge amount on of, of activism on most campuses around this issue. Stanford has its own task force that's about to come out with new recommendations. So I think that's an illustration of how the adept use of new technologies and media, um, but also old-fashioned, you know, um, from the ground up, grassroots organizing has made a difference at a national policy level, and I think it's a model for how we need to proceed on other issues. Um, you know, everything from the Columbia woman who carried around a mattress from class to class and got huge press attention to that, uh, for that, to the ones who, you know, had um, had their stories go viral. Um, did a lot of consciousness raising and has been just incredibly effective in mm -hmm. instrumental change. In terms of your other question, how to deal with the tension between mainstreaming and um, integral uh, homes for, for gender studies, I think you need both. Um, and I think they have to be in dialogue with each other. Um, there, as I said earlier, there are no shortcuts. I think it's not a question of either, either or. It's a question of how do we get both and. Yes. I'm actually very surprised to learn that uh, there is a, a sexual assault problem even at the very uh, prestigious university like, like, like Stanford University. And uh, 
and I think uh, uh, that seems to be a quite a bit of a, a different problem from the uh, uh, sexual assaults uh, in the military, where you know uh, all those soldiers are not necessarily uh, enjoy um, high level of intelligence. And what, what do you think uh, are the causes for those uh, male students with such high intelligence still committing uh, such crimes, which I don't really get? It? Uh, well, um, you know, sometimes um, the soft stuff is the hard stuff for people who are, who are good at the hard stuff. Uh, you know, I think it, I, we don't have an time for a huge, long um, conversation about the cultural roots of rape, but I think that what you see at the, in so-called elite universities, for example, is a sense of entitlement, um, a lack of sensitivity um, to coerce, you know, the extent to which um, coercion is an illegitimate way to express sexuality, a fair amount of reluctance on the part of universities to expose these cases who wants this on your front page known as a place um, that has a rape problem um, and uh, a culture that sexualizes aggression um, and kids pick that up from very early ages um, look at some of the you know um, the game video games that young men play um, we make it sexy and movies that eroticize violence. So um, we know that, that the problem cuts across class levels. Um, and I think it should come as no surprise that elite universities have, have a problem as well as other universities. Um, and in fact, I think there's maybe somewhat more complacency at elite university. Well, how could we have this problem that gets in the way of solving it? Yes. I have a, a question. Uh, thank you for being here today. I'm the Dean of Students here at the Kennedy School, so I'm especially thrilled to hear your talk and to have our students be here. But prior to my role here, I was a dean and a faculty member at Princeton, and I actually used your book almost every year that I taught women's leadership in modern America. Uh, so I'm excited to, to be able to to hear much of what you said today, and I'm wondering about one of the aspects that you raised in your talk about feminism, and it was something that came up again and again in my class, and how current students uh, identify or don't self-identify as feminists when they hear the term or the definition, mm -hmm. as you alluded to, and it was interesting in the class, many of the students initially didn't think of themselves as feminists, but by the end of the course, and by the time we understood the definition, it was kind of like, well, of course, yes, I'm yeah. feminist. Uh, but what was also interesting is right during this time on Princeton's campus, we were looking at the challenges that we saw with women assuming leadership positions on campus and a number of leadership roles that kind of lead into some of mm -hmm. the issues you were talking about in terms of addressing disparity in technology and corporate America, et cetera. And I, I think it's really, it was helpful to hear you talk about curricular changes and initiatives that academic institutions can take to cultivate more 
uh, understanding and appreciation for women and men of, of how to do more to bring women into leadership. But I'm also wondering if you could talk a little bit about co-curricular or programmatic initiatives or any best practices that you've seen that we can share with our students, men and women, to help them understand ways they can be proactive regardless of what sector they go into, but just approaches that they can use or even that we can use as administrative leaders to really help people address and understand the impact of gender inequity and what that means in terms of having access to leadership roles. Wow, you know, I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, you know, one thing that, that, that the research shows um, makes a difference in getting um, male leaders to take the issue seriously is if they have daughters who are professionals. Because then, you know, um, they see it close to home. So somehow making um, people see the examples of it in their own um, circumstances can be effective. But uh, I think if, if we had any surefire ways of doing it in a productive way, we wouldn't be seeing the numbers that we continue to see at leadership levels. Um, and I think this whole, you know, sort of likability con competence trade-off for women at leadership is a is a huge problem. Have you seen examples of or some of the things that you've done on your campus you mentioned the optional training for faculty uh, that for the law school faculty that they had on race and gender are there other approaches or recommendations that you can think of that would be helpful? Well one thing that happened I mean transparency and accountability are are, are always important. A number of women did a survey of campus leadership positions and found, surprise, surprise, uh, women significantly underrepresented. Um, they did pretty well at the top, the most visible level where the president and the provost were, you know, focused, but then once you got beyond that, it was pretty dismal. So in good academic form, the uh, president and the provost appointed a task force on it. So I'm now on this task force, and we, among the things that we did was um, interviews of male and female leaders to see if they had the same gender paths or the same paths to the position and if the women encountered any gender-related barriers that men didn't. We also interviewed aspiring um, women to see whether they had a clear sense of what the path to leadership was, whether they were getting support. We've got a leadership academy at Stanford that's supposed to be helping women and underrepresented minorities get to leadership positions, but nobody's ever done any follow-up to see whether it actually does. Uh, so the president, whom I interviewed for this task force, said, gee, it would be kind of nice to know, you know, they've been sinking money into this thing for like 10 years and nobody's done a systematic number crunching. And, you know, they, the participants all think it's worthwhile, but nobody goes back to see whether a year, two years out, it's made any difference. So um, I, as somebody who teach in that academy, have some severe doubts that it's made any difference. But those are the kinds of things that I think you need is a structure like 
like a committee that's focused on it and the attention of upper-level administrators, which often comes through shaming. Yes. Yes. Uh, following up on this, uh, it always it always strikes me uh, as somebody who's studying the UN and also is now situated in Europe uh, that when we talk about uh, gender mainstreaming in the US, that pretty much is limited to women's studies versus gender studies. Whereas in the rest of the world, when we talk about gender mainstreaming, it's about uh, infusing the question of what policy or program. If, if it's, it's, it's an institutional strategy and that, that requires that uh, organizations, institutions ask at every level of the institution and in every program that they put forward, what differential impacts does this program project policy have on women and men? And to do that systematically throughout the institution. It's, it's in a sense a very different strategy than the strategy that uh, we focus here in, in the US, which is much more focused on education, also the law uh, and using legal interventions in order to produce change, as opposed to saying, uh, let's, let's go an institutional way of, of uh, diffusing responsibility for gender equality throughout uh, institutions. And, and it's interesting to me that you mentioned this, uh, um, this entity that was created in order to review what is happening happening at the university because it goes in that direction. So, so I, I'm not I, I'm puzzled actually. I'm puzzled why in the U.S. gender mainstreaming, as uh, promoted by the United Nations, as uh, the U.S. signed on to the Beijing platform for action and. You know, why can this not happen in the U.S. when it can happen, it can happen in the rest of the world? And are there any other institutional strategies that you, that are just not called gender mainstreaming, perhaps that, that are actually uh, taking place in this country, uh, but not visible? But it just seems to me such a logical next step to take beyond you know, beyond the education and the training and all of those other things. Yeah. Well. You know, I don't have much to add other than what I said earlier about the no problem problem. I think one reason why you don't have it here is because, you know, we've made so much progress in getting at the worst aspects of the problem that people um, don't think that there's a substantial problem that needs to be addressed. You know, um, women are moving up. You've got one poised to become president. Uh, you see women in, um, you know, in boardrooms and in cabinet positions, and people just don't think that there's a serious problem. Yeah, Barbara. Uh, so I have uh, worked with uh, Deborah on the book and an article on women in leadership, and I've, I've taught it here for some years at the Kennedy School on Barbara Kellum, and I also teach women in leadership at Tuck. So I just want to make a few comments. First, it will be triggered really by yours opening. The Princeton study to which I think you refer, which is a study of undergraduate women, is, I should preface the Princeton thing by saying, in my view, and you may differ with me, mm -hmm. Princeton had for many years the best female president by far no, I agree. On, <laughs> women, on women's oh, issues in particular. Yeah, she was great. Phenomenal. 
seriously proactive. I, I'm not going to comment on any other women presidents of any other universities. Shirley Tillman was amazing. So imagine Princeton's surprise when around two uh, 2010, they conducted the study, I think it was published in 2011, when they found out that female undergraduates were notably less likely to have leadership roles on campus, <coughs> and in fact, notably less likely to have leadership roles in 2010 than they had had a few years earlier, especially when they started admitting women to Princeton. Now, I bring this up because I, it's the best study that I know of to look at this leadership issue in particular, which you raised and a few others of you have raised from a relatively early age. Again, elite university, fabulous president, everything in place to have women uh, on an equal level with men with regard to uh, leadership, but in fact they were by every measure way behind. Now, the, the interesting question to me, after years of study of this subject, I'm mainly a leadership person, not women in leadership for me is a subset. So the question is, what the hell's going on here? Now, in addition to this kind of finding, there's a new book that I'm, I know you know about called The Silent Sex, which is a yay, a doorstop of a book on how women throughout law, their lives, particularly in public settings, this is political settings particularly, talk a lot less than men. Duh, we know that. This documents it to no end. So the question is, what is going on here? What can we usefully contribute to the discussion, particularly on women leadership, in an era in which for the, at least the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I think this is something we might add to the conversation, Lots of companies, you mentioned the quotas, others of you did the same, lots of institutions, companies, have done a fair amount. In other words, it's not as if the world has stood still. So we have mentoring programs, sponsorship programs, and part-time programs, and flex-time programs. So structures have in some way responded to this cry for equity that we're talking about. And yet the numbers remain stubbornly low. I guess I would just my, and I will end with this, Deborah. Uh, the title of your book, this last book, is What Women Want. Do I have that exactly mm -hmm. right? What Women Want? I think that's a really interesting question. Because underlying the question is what women want is exactly the same as what men want, in particular with regard to playing leadership roles. Increasingly in the discussion, and it's it was very politically incorrect, it's still a little bit politically incorrect, is the question of actual genetic, psychological, emotional, physiological differences between men and women. In other words, women, guess what, men, men and women are not the same. It is possible that some of the things that drive women as they go through life are not exactly the same as what drive men, and that as the discussion matures and becomes less fraught with political correctness, correctness these differences will be taken into account as we discuss many different equity issues, certainly the women in leadership uh, issue high on that list. I'm done. Barbara and I have a long, long <laughs> com standing conversation on exactly this subject and, you know, I, I certainly take her point. Um, I think we just don't know what preferences would be in an equal world, in a world in which, for example, men and women equally shared 
family responsibilities um, or had the equal opportunity to share family responsibilities, to remain agnostic on whether they would choose that division of roles. Um, I think we're so far from that world that, that, that we can't talk about unconstrained choices. There are just too many ways in which society constructs and constrains the choices for women. And I think, you know, it's more than enough in my lifetime to try to get at some of those barriers. Um, and it'll be for some subsequent generation to sort of sort out um, what the gender division of roles will be in a context in which people were really free, free to choose. Um, but I just don't think we're, we're close to that now. And there are too many cases of women choosing to lean in, Ellen Powell being just the most recent example, and finding workplace cultures in, that make it virtually impossible. What her mentor at the firm talked about her having a female chip on her shoulder and, you know, if she had one, I think there was some responsibility on the part of the firm to ask how it got there and what, if anything, they ought to be doing to address it. And that's where I think we still need to have the conversation. And at some point in the, you know, um, I hope not impossibly distant future, we can have the conversation about unconstrained preferences. Um, but first, we got to get rid of the constraints. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. And I might just add that in addition to lean in, one might consider this essential text as well. <laughs> um, next, we have Kathleen McGinn, uh, the Connor Robb Professor of Business Administration from the Business School, joining us. She's talking about it takes a family and a country, cross national effects of non traditional gender role models on gender inequalities at work and at home to continue this conversation. Mm -hmm.